Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with uh, Scott Husing. He's the author of uh, Echo in Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. It's actually Major Scott Husing. He'll join us later this hour to tell his and their story. Um, also, I wanted to give you a Dan Rice update. He and I met with the infectious diseases doctor yesterday, and you're always a little bit... Um, unsure of what to expect. He had gone on Friday and had a blood culture, which is required to determine if the infection that threatens to destroy his artificial heart valve and push him toward a heart transplant, if that is under control, if it's growing, what the situation is. So we had that on Friday. We went to the appointment yesterday, and I have to tell you how utterly thrilled I am that the uh, the doctor said that in that particular test that they did not detect the infection. Now, she was quick to follow up and say that does doesn't mean it's not there, but at that moment, at that time, in this place, we did not see it. We're taking that as, um, you know, Dan's health is greatly improved, and uh, she went on to say that he doesn't need to do any more blood cultures or any visits or anything for the next six months, so we've had a a six-month reprieve, and we're very grateful for that. I know that many of you have been praying for, uh, for me and for Dan Rice, in fact, this last weekend at Ignite. I met many of you who said that Dan Rice's name is on our prayer list and we've been praying daily for you and for him. And I cannot express to you how much that means to us and how much that has carried us through what's been a very difficult and uncertain period, knowing that Dan's life, that our lives are in God's hands and whatever the outcome is, we will trust him. We know that he's good and uh, his timing is always perfect, even when we don't uh, fully understand it. But the, the prayers of the saints, uh, people we know, people we don't know, has just meant a great deal to us walking through uh, what could very well have been the shadow of of death. So we're excited for the next six months. We're just going to live life normally. Oh, and I should mention, he's continued to take massive doses of antibiotics by mouth, and that uh, dose has been reduced dramatically, and that's always good because over time, you know, taking antibiotics can be very harsh on your system. He's tried to balance that out with probiotics, and he eats a really good quality yogurt on a daily basis, very careful about other things that he's doing. Uh, but we're just delighted and grateful that we have um, this great report, and I wanted to share it with many of you who've been praying uh, for us and asking me how Dan is doing. So there you have it. Meanwhile, Monday, I arrived at work Monday morning, fully expecting that I would sit behind the mic and do a live program. What happened was I went to a dental appointment in the morning. Nothing too terribly unusual about that, except that you get the Novocaine. And I had Novocaine, I think, three or four shots in my upper left side where some work was going to be done, which is always unpleasant. Uh, But in the process of preparing to do that work in the upper left-hand side, they dislodged a crown on the lower left-hand side, which meant everything halted for what was going to happen at the top and all the attention was shifted to the bottom. Um, what I had actually gone in for and, in fact, paid for before the procedure started, never got uh, seen to, in the process of reattaching, which now turns out to be a replacement of the crown that was uh, dislodged, um, the uh, drill, I don't even know how to describe it, but the, my tongue was drilled 
And I cannot tell you how painful that is. First of all, when it happens, it's very painful. But then over time, it seemed like it got worse. And to swallow, to drink anything, to eat, to talk was so extremely painful and it was swollen uh, that the decision was made by my producer. We're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to do that today. And I got a brief reprieve. Well, it's been very um, challenging uh, from that moment to this. And I just I called the dentist this morning and she told me to try some of that uh, that numbing gel that you can just buy that if you have a cavity or something, it's supposed to reduce the tooth pain. And I'm, I'm doing that now, but I have to do it probably about every 30 minutes for it to work. So if I suddenly start to sound like I'm having a stroke, that's what's happening. My <laughs> The numbing sensation is gone and I, I'm uh, starting to feel pain again. But it's been sort of an interesting uh, couple of days, ups and downs, but I'm glad to be behind the mic today and doing what I do here at KPDQ. Some of the top news headlines, Attorney General Jeff Sessions outlined the Justice Department's lawsuit against the state of California, alleging interference with enforcement of federal immigration policies. Does he have a case? Some suggest you might have a pretty good case there. Also, White House Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohn, we talked about it a bit yesterday, resigned after refusing to back the president's tariffs plan. Now, this back and forth with the president apparently went on much longer than the uh, the public announcement, but Mr. Cohn, who is considered uh, to share a different uh, perspective on the subject, has decided to step away, uh, having started that conversation weeks ago with the administration. The president hopes the, to uh, uh, replace him soon, and there's speculation already as to who might fill those shoes. The Texas primary election show a surge in Democratic voter turnout. No big surprise there. A possible warning sign for Republicans seeking to retain uh, control of Congress this fall. Uh, and historically, that's uh, that's always in jeopardy when you hold the, the White House, the House and the Senate. We'll see if history repeats itself. An adult film star Stormy Daniels is suing President Trump over the validity of a purported hush agreement. We won't go into much detail about that salacious arrangement, but uh, it is grievous. Uh, the East Coast is bracing for another nor'easter today, just as um, some residents had their power restored following last week's very serious storm. So uh, their uh, attention is focused on that. The lead story, of course, being that the uh, J- Trump Justice Department fed up with the uh, California interference, uh, filed lawsuit uh, uh, last night against California saying three recently passed state laws were deliberately interfering with federal immigration policies. And it marked the latest legal and political confrontation with the nation's most populous state, which the federal government says has repeatedly stood in the way of its plans to step up enforcement actions in the workplace and against criminal aliens. Federal officials are seeking an injunction to immediately block enforcement of those laws, these three California laws each enacted within the past year. So we'll talk in a little bit more detail on all of those momentarily, but those are the top news stories. And again, later this hour, we'll talk with Scott Husing. He is the author of Echo in Ramadi, the firsthand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. Well, as I mentioned, the attorney general did, in fact, unload on California Democrats who pushed a radical open borders agenda, as he put it, as his Justice Department sued the state over its immigration policies, warning that there will be no secession. Secession spoke uh, at uh, an event or rather sessions spoke at an event uh, for California law enforcement. And a day after the Justice Department announced it was filing lawsuit against the sanctuary city state over three pieces of legislation. In his remarks, the attorney general noted worries 
some trends as violent crime increased in 2014 and 2015, particularly a surge in homicide and drug availability. He said that a lawful immigration system was part of tackling such trends. The attorney general said that while America admits the highest numbers of legal immigrants in the world, the American people deserve a legal, rational immigration system that protects the nation and preserves the the national interest. It cannot be the policy of a great nation to reward those who unlawfully enter its country with legal status, social security, welfare, food stamps, work permits, and so forth. How can this be a sound policy, he asked. Meanwhile, those who engage in this process lawfully and patiently and wait for their turn are discriminated against, it seems, at every turn. Well, turning to California, he described open borders policies that refuse to uh, apprehend and deport illegal immigrants as a radical, irrational idea that cannot be accepted. He rejected the right of states to obstruct federal immigration law, and that will be the crux of the issue in the lawsuit filed against the state of California. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned earlier that the Trump Department of Justice sued California over interference with with immigration enforcement. And I read with interest in David French's article that appeared um, in uh, National Review that suggested that the Obama administration uh, set a precedent that may doom California's effort to make itself a sanctuary city. And he writes it by successfully asserting the primacy of federal law over state law before the Supreme Court, Obama's Department of Justice. This may have thwarted California's attempt to resist Trump administration immigration policy. American political parties have an enduring and deeply cynical love-hate relationship with federalism. When the opposing party occupies the White House, the founders' vision of sovereign states and a limited federal government suddenly has an alluring appeal. Retake the White House and it becomes time for the states to fall into line. Well, California progressives have been loving federalism lately. While they've pushed through a number of policies specifically designed to fight the Trump administration, few have garnered more headlines than the state's comprehensive statutory scheme to limit cooperation with federal immigration authorities. The statutes don't block the federal government from enforcing federal law. They do, however, limit the extent to which federal authorities can depend on California citizens and state officials to affirmatively assist in executing the federal mission. So that's uh, that's federalism, right? While it's clear that states can't nullify federal laws in the absence of conflicting federal statutes, um, the Trump DOJ picked up that uh, club suing California to block its new statutes. You see, way back in 2012, the two parties had very different views of federalism. The GOP wanted to dissent from Obama immigration policies, and the Obama administration very much wanted to impose its own version of uniform national rule. The state of Arizona, facing multiple challenges from a swelling illegal immigrant population, population rather, enacted a statute that essentially created enhanced penalties for illegal immigrants and granted state officials new power to enforce existing federal law. In other words, it was the mirror image of the California effort. Arizona's statute didn't conflict with federal law. It was just different from federal law, reflecting the state's sovereign priorities. The Obama administration sued, taking the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And on the 25th of June, 2012, the court struck down the key provisions of the Arizona law. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion, and it was sweeping in its language and scope. Essentially, Kennedy ruled that Congress, through its comprehensive statutory scheme, had occupied the field of alien registration 
migration and immigration, but the state may not pursue policies that undermine federal law. Justice Antonin Scalia wrote an opinion concurring uh, in part and dissenting in part, and it was a classic Scalia decision. It surveyed relevant American constitutional history, discussed the nature of state sovereignty, reached a conclusion that California would almost certainly like to cling to today. In light of the predominance of federal immigration restrictions in modern times, it's easy to lose sight of the state's traditional role in regulating immigration and to overlook their sovereign prerogative to do so. I accept as a given that state regulation is excluded by the Constitution when it has been prohibited by a valid federal law or it it conflicts rather with federal regulation. When, for example, it admits those whom federal regulation would exclude or excludes those whom federal regulation would admit. Well, under the Kennedy framework, California law likely goes down in flames. If Arizona's efforts at creating complementary policies were impermissible, then California faces an immense challenge justifying a policy that is quite explicitly designed to undermine federal enforcement. According to Kennedy's reasoning, adopted by uh, Roberts, that America wasn't a single sovereign entity, but rather a unified nation comprising multiple distinct and different states with their own sovereign interests, the federal government is uh, supreme. But in the absence of conflict with federal law, the states have considerable discretion to fashion their own policies. They are, after all, different in history, politics, geography, and culture. But the founders' vision is vision rather is largely lost. Federalism has become just another constitutional means to an ideological end, a way of accomplishing locally what you can't accomplish nationally. It's a defense mechanism when you're out of power and an annoyance when you're in power. That's why the Obama administration sued Arizona and the Trump administration is suing California. That's why the same progressives who cheered the Obama administration's Supreme Court victory in 2012 will complain bitterly if the Trump administration wins its suit in 2018. And that's why all too many conservatives who supported Arizona now want to bring down the hammer on California. Again, it's all a matter of, uh, I suppose, geography. Are you in or out of power? Federalism has its appeal depending on where you stand numerically and geographically uh, geographically in terms of power. Rather interesting uh, concept. Uh, Tammy Bruce, um, observing uh, the chaos in California, immigration being only one issue, uh, points out and makes the case that unchallenged liberalism leaves homelessness, drug abuse, garbage in its wake. But is that a fair assessment? She writes that liberal policy failure is all around us and destroys lives every day. In California, the destruction of society and individual lives has become so overwhelming, the state's liberal overseers now spend their time covering up where they can and normalizing the chaos as much as possible. Since 2013, when now liberal icon Eric Garcetti was elected mayor of Los Angeles and the nation had just reelected Barack Obama as president, Los Angeles homeless population skyrocketed 46%. During the Obama years where challenged to unchallenged liberalism was pushed and accepted, wrongly she puts in uh, in parentheses, as the new normal, we saw the leftist economic menace rage through the entire nation destroying businesses and the full-time jobs they went um, That went with them. In California, the destruction is particularly acute, she writes. As the social structure in major cities continues to break down, the state focuses on banning plastic straws, whether to release from prison a mass murderer from the Manson family while cheering at becoming a sanctuary state. Just this week, the Los Angeles Times issued an editorial titled, Los Angeles Homeless Crisis is a National Disgrace. Actually, it's not. It's a California disgrace. The editorial exemplifies the refusal of liberals there to not 
just admit their responsibility to social destruction, but an inability to even relate to reality. The Times editorial board chided in part, today, a greater and greater proportion of people living on the streets are there because of bad luck or a series of mistakes or because the economy forgot them. They lost their job or were evicted or fled an abusive marriage just as the housing market was uh, was growing increasingly unforgiving, end quote. They refer to the economy as though it's a, a mean thing with a life of its own and simply forgot people. There's no need to consider the actual people in charge of policy and the economy. That lost job or domestic strife, a mean uh, housing market, are all pointed at as though they were all dropped on earth by Martians. The other factor is, of course, the social justice issue. All great social issues of American society play out in homelessness, inequality, racial injustice, poverty, violence, sexism, end quote. Never mentioned uh, idiotic and incompetent uh, leadership that destroys businesses and jobs, regulations, waste, fraud, abuse that leave human beings on the street because the theory of socialism is all that matters. It was reported uh, that 25 percent of the nation's half million homeless live in California, the largest of any state. Why is California in such trouble? Todd Spitzer of the Orange County, California Board of Supervisors blames the problem on two issues. Legislation signed by Democratic Governor Jerry Brown over the past several years that has eroded the penalties for drug use, possession, petty crimes to where police often don't bother making arrests and the change in a law so that treatment is no longer forced for drug abuse or mental health issues. For liberals, social chaos is their friend. They need it to prey on the emotions of others while then using it as an argument for more government control of of our lives. As if living in those conditions is just another life choice, the ACLU tried to stop Mr. Spitzer's effort to clean up a homelessness camp of 700 people living along the riverbed next to Angeles Stadium. He prevailed, but so dangerous was the environment it took hazmat crews to clear out the encampment. Trash trucks and contractors... Uh, in hazmat gear have descended on the camp and so far removed 250 tons of trash, 1,100 pounds of human waste, 5,000 hypodermic needles, the report said. The left has a history of working hard to hide their failure, malevolence, destruction of society. Years ago, this column brought, and again, I'm quoting Tammy Bruce, uh, brought to you the effort by San Francisco to move their homelessness to an island. Now the story is about how the city spends $30 million trying to clean city streets of hypodermic needles and human waste. Again, Tammy Bruce writing at foxnews.com. Up next, we're going to talk with Major Scott Husing. He is the author of Echo in Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 37 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, imagine for a moment what goes through the mind of a Marine carrying the weight of leading 250 men through Iraq's deadliest city. For nearly nine brutal months, Marines from Echo Company fought daily in the dangerous, dense city streets of Ramadi, Iraq, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Echo in Ramadi, the first-hand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city, is Major Scott Husling's gripping and deeply personal account of modern urban combat. Bound together by brotherhood and honor and horror, the horror they faced, Echo's Marines battled day-to-day on the front line of a totally different kind of war, one without rules. 
Husing brings uh, these resilient, resolute young men to life, some back to life, and show how the savagery of urban combat left indelible scars. And uh, transparently told by the man who endured them, Echo in Ramadi is an exhilarating capsule of one company's experience of war that will leave readers stunned. We need to be aware of what happened there, what these men faced there, and how we can support them now that they have returned home. Scott Husing is a retired U.S. uh, Marine Corps infantry major with over 24 years of service. His career spanned 10 deployments. He conducted operations in over 60 countries worldwide. During his deployment in Iraq, he commanded... Echo Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, as a part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He currently lives with his wife and daughter in San Diego, California, where he serves as the executive director of Save the Brave. It's a nonprofit organization committed to supporting veterans struggling with post-traumatic stress. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Major. It's a delight to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me on the program, Georgine. It's a real pleasure. Now, it has to be very difficult to share with civilians your experience in in Iraq. That wasn't your first deployment. As I mentioned, you served for two decades in the U.S. military. Why did uh, your time in Ramadi, Iraq, stand out um, above your other experiences serving in the U.S. military? Well, that's a great question, and when I get off, and, and I think when I look back at my career, which was long, it was you know, 24 years, um, just like everybody's career, you have points and, and pinnacles that really, I think, define uh, what you do, what you're committed to, and our time, certainly in Ramadi in 2006 and 2007, was absolutely the you know pinnacle of my career, leading those men and women uh, at times in the bloody streets of Ramadi was uh, something that was a story so remarkable because these young men and women that, that fought day in and day out, sometimes two, three, four, five times a day against a very well-trained enemy, I didn't want that story to become marginalized or fall under the shadows of other great battles that we've been fighting during this long war, like the Fallujahs and Baghdads and Tikrits or Kandahars in Afghanistan. So it's a very significant battle, uh, not only historically speaking, but I wanted to write this story and share the story in Echo Nirmadi to honor the sacrifices of the Marines that fought and the soldiers, but also the families that supported us while we fought and our amazing Gold Star families that continue to support us to this day because they're so important to us. And I think that those that aren't in the military, those that aren't veterans, those that have not been exposed to that or don't even live near military bases can really learn so much from the book Echo and Ramadi yeah. because there are lessons not just about the fighting and the friction and the, the pain and the loss and sometimes the laughter of it all, but the lessons of leadership and team building and overcoming adversity and survival and that power of human connection that really helped us fight and win in the city of Ramadi and that power of human connection that really keeps us bonded as we continue to heal to this day. Now, many of us are familiar with the name Ramadi, Iraq. We know that there were great battles that took place there, but can you paint a picture for us of what Ramadi, Iraq was like? Well, there was a discussion when we were coming up with the title for the book because the word Ramadi, which in Arabic means the gray city, um, a lot of a, a lot of people said, "Well, nobody's nobody's going to know what Ramadi is. No one's going to do that." But you know, throughout the course of American history, they didn't know 
words like Guadalcanal mm-hmm. or Iwo Jima or Quezon either, but we've come to know those because people shared those stories as well. But the city itself, the gray city, Ramadi, um, was a vast refuge, like this giant military scrapyard that had been rubbled to the point of, uh, you know, mounds of of concrete and everything was covered in a, a thin layer of of gray dust and it was just like a scene out of some post-apocalyptic movie literally had been hammered by insurgent and coalition fighting for well over a decade um and it was almost surreal at times the the landscape or lack thereof Mm -hmm. there was absolutely no infrastructure that was working there was no governance there was no police there was no security there was there was it really was just a vast wasteland. It was uh, something that, you know, we lived in daily and uh, we had to not only battle a very well-trained enemy, but also the conditions that we fought in were, you know, so so life-altering that uh, it really was challenging day in and day out. Now, you make the point, and I, I, I emphasize this because listeners who may be have served in the military and are, are uh, familiar with con- conventional warfare, you fought day to day on the front lines of a totally different kind of war, one without rules. The opponents did not wear uniforms. Talk a little bit about the challenge of engaging an enemy that wasn't always uh, identifiable or easy to find. Sure. I, it's, it, it is difficult to imagine for the average American to understand we literally fought and we lived in the city amongst the people. And that was comprised of about 90%. The other 10% were those that we fought. You know, About 5% were hardcore insurgent fighters. And another 5% were co-belligerents who kind of just wanted to make a name for themselves, I suppose. And, and when they did, they stepped up and fought the Marines and soldiers. They lost. It was a bad day for them. But the other 90% were you know, general, peace-loving Iraqi citizens that wanted stability, that wanted safety, that wanted some semblance of a normal life. And they had been consumed by this chaos, this, this friction that I described in Echo and Ramadi um, and on many pages, because the friction is just something that are those conditions that you're constantly surrounded by. But to say that the Iraqi people or the Arab culture can be defined by some radical um, insurgency or some radical faction or ISIS, that's not true because they're people and they're children and they, they want a normal life. And as I write in the book, there were times as we fought um, daily uh, um, amongst the people trying to find who the enemy was, the civilians were caught in the crossfire yeah. many times. And, and they'd become so desensitized to this type of violence surging that it, it would almost be a surreal experience for me and my Marines because they'd be standing there as we'd be blazing away against the enemy, uh, watching us like some spectator sport at a, at a football game. And it really was... There were times where we literally had to take a break in action and say, hey, get inside your house. This is not safe. But they've become so desensitized to this. And I don't think that most Americans can really understand that type of environment. I mean, other than watching a real bad episode of Cops, where that show used to be on TV and having a squad of Marines or platoon of Marines barge into your house and you know, tell you to take cover and, you know, they go to the rooftops and and they're fighting, you know, for hours on end against the insurgents. It was uh, really 
a common occurrence for these people, and it was a common occurrence for the Marines and soldiers that fought. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. It does uh, certainly sound surreal. We're going to continue our conversation, but we need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Major Scott Husing. His book is a firsthand account, Echo in Ramadi, the firsthand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. Really gives us a better understanding of what happened there and what those who remain in the uh, general vicinity uh, face today. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Major Scott Husing. His book, Echo in, Mar- in Ramadi, the firsthand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. Tell us about some of the men that you served with, uh, young Marines who matured throughout this 10-month ordeal uh, that you were with in Ramadi. Yeah, so when we fought in Ramadi in 2006 and 2007, um, I was tasking these young men to perform these superhuman acts in the face of great danger when they were surrounded by complete uncertainty. And at the time, all I really saw was sergeant or corporal. I didn't see these 20-year-old kids. And that's what they were. That was the average age. And as I went through and I wrote Echo and Ramadi, and I went through the interviews, that's something that really stuck out to me because I never realized how young they were. And at the time, I was a 35-year-old captain. I'd had multiple deployments. I had a lot of life experience. And for me, um, I just saw the Marines. And despite how young they were, they never failed to perform phenomenally. They continued to fight and take care of each other better than anything I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm so remarkably proud of how they fought and how they took care of each other and me, because I wouldn't be talking to you today had it not been for their bravery and their sacrifice and just every sheer instance of brotherhood at its most basic level. It was really the epitome of what esprit de corps is and what the Marine Corps stands for, because it's not just the fact that the Marines are absolutely the most lethal weapons on any battlefield or how straight they shoot the rifles or how they attack the enemy with this unbridled ferocity and protect our country, but they do it with such honor. And that's what really distinguishes them. And that's the mission of, of, of the Marines. And they take care of people that can't take care of themselves. And that's what they were doing as they fought this civil war, this insurgency where we were literally living amongst the people, fighting a faceless, ununiformed enemy where the front line was literally everywhere. It was mm. a very, a very uh, challenging situation, not only for a commander, uh, you know, who had a lot of experience at, at my age, but for these young guys to make these life and death decisions on a daily basis was just inspiring to me as I continued to lead them. And that was how I got to know them. And I always put myself at the point of most friction. I was always with my men. If there was gear to be moved, I was I was moving it with them. If there was a patrol, I was on it. If there was a firefight, I was in it. And I always wanted to be there with my guys because I never subscribed to the adage or notion that officers need to know their place or shouldn't be seen doing things that the young enlisted guys should be doing. That's just not how I was trained. And and maybe I had a little different perspective because I was an enlisted Marine at one point in my career, but I don't think that made me a better officer. A lot of people say, well, because you're a, a Mustang, you know, a horse of a couple of different breeds, you know, did that make you a better officer? And I always say, no, it didn't. I think it gave me a different perspective on 
how I valued the Marines' time and how, how much of a burden it was for them to do the things I was tasking them to do. And I looked at it with compassion, which isn't one of our leadership traits or principle, but it's absolutely a word that I think effective commanders add to their lexicon to be able to inspire their Marines. Because if you truly get to know those you lead and understand that it's all of their backgrounds, it's all of their special skills and personalities. And trust me, there were plenty of personalities Hmm. in my company. We had a lot of them. Um, To be able to manage those um, and get them to do the things that needed to be done when they didn't want to do them, that's the real challenge of leadership. Yeah, and that's that's a remarkable part of the story. You write about the first Marine uh, under your leadership that you lost. You write about the Gold Star families and how meaningful they have been for those who did uh, return home. And you also write about the challenges that um, veterans struggle with with post-traumatic stress. How how should we better understand those who served us so well, who are now home and are are experiencing that trauma in, in ways that perhaps we'll never fully understand, but your book helps us at least gain some insight into? Well, I think most most listeners should understand that the people that serve in our military, this all-volunteer force, they make up less than one-half of 1% of the entire American population of 330 million people. And then there's the Marine Corps. And then within the Marine Corps, there's the infantry. And then within the infantry, there's even a smaller percentage of guys like me that um, go into combat and that have to do and see some of the worst acts of humanity. And those leave, you know, definite impacts and, and, and scars on these guys at such a young age. And there's a word that we use um, on how we deal with this type of trauma. And, and everybody processes it different, but it, we compartmentalize it. We take these these horrific, life-changing experiences, these pieces of trauma, and we pack them away because we have to. That's how you that's how you survive, and that's how you continue to fight and win in a situation like we did in Ramadi, which was the deadliest city of Iraq. But as you transition from unit to unit, some of these guys do multiple deployments, you know, you know, back to back tours. Um, and my guys were no different. I was very lucky in 2006 to have about 50 veterans from the first battle of Ramadi in 2004. So I had a group of these salty seasoned veterans that had already seen more than the share of fighting. <laughs> and Georgie, when I say salty seasoned veterans, I'm talking now about 22 year old sergeants. All right. Wow. So, um, that that's a lot to jam into a short period. Mm-hmm. And so how everybody deals with what they had to do and, you know, having to see some of the worst acts of humanity that, you know, are created by humans, um, because combat is not a natural event. I mean, humans create war and there's no unseeing some of the things that these, these yeah. men and women had to see. So when they have to make that transition and when they have to start unpacking some of those things that they've compartmentalized over the years, it is a challenge for them. And I'm very happy to be able to provide an outlet for them through SaveTheBrave.org, which is my nonprofit that a portion of the proceeds of Ecomati go to. Well, I, I wish we had more time, but I would certainly recommend our listeners who want to better understand the fighting that went on there. Uh, Major uh, Husing, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Appreciate it very much. Uh, thank you. It was a pleasure being on the program. Again, the book is Echo in Ramadi, the firsthand story of U.S. Marines in Iraq's deadliest city. Scott Husing is the author. The book is published by Regnery History. News and traffic up next.
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon. And welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Well, we learned earlier this week that Gary Cohn, who is the chief economic advisor to the uh, president, has resigned or soon will design, uh, resign rather. And the reason that uh, is being speculated is the disagreement that he has with the president on whether or not there ought to be uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum. Well, the uh, the question is uh, whether or not uh, the United States has squandered its steel superiority and if tariffs had anything to do with it. Well, I appreciated a piece that I read earlier today by Stephen Men, in which he points out, to spoiler alert, that unfair trade practices of foreign nations had nothing to do with it. Now, I'm not finding very many people outside of steel states that hope that this will revitalize their economies in support of the reintroduction of tariffs, but... Uh, This is what uh, Mr. Men says, looking back historically on how the United States, as he put it, squandered its steel superiority. He writes that Donald Trump wants to help the steel industry in this country, and he's announced plans to for protective tariffs, claiming that trade wars are good and easy to win. By way of explanation, uh, Trump claims that steel and many other industries have been decimated by decades of unfair trade and bad policy. Well, that's certainly a conversation to have on unfair uh, uh, trade and, and bad policy. And he's correct on one thing. This has been a problem many decades in the making, but it's a problem rooted in disastrous decisions made by the steel companies themselves when Trump was still in elementary school. Well, Mr. Men goes on to write that at the end of World War II, American steel had no real challengers. It produced nearly three quarters of the world's steel and the factories of its biggest competition, Japan and Germany, lay in ruins. Giants like U.S. Steel looked poised to dominate the world for the foreseeable future. Instead, the industry was lapped by foreign producers and unfair trade. Trade practices were simply not a factor. Instead, the blame lies with U.S. manufacturers who held on to the so-called open hearth method of steel production decades after its expiration date. Europeans, though, had no such attachment to the past, perhaps because many factories had been destroyed in the war. Moreover, they had started experimenting with the idea of turning iron into steel by blasting pure oxygen onto the molten metal. This method, which became known as the basic oxygen process, first entered trial use in 1948 at a Factory in Linz, Austria, owned by the small steel firm Volst. The company soon built a full-scale commercial facility that went online in 1952. Lentz became something of an industrial mecca in the succeeding years. The steelmakers the world over visited to see this new process firsthand. Most became immediate converts and with good reason. The cost of building steel mills using the basic oxygen furnaces was 40 to 50 percent lower than conventional open hearth factories. Operating costs were 25 percent lower, though some studies suggest even greater cost savings. But it was the productivity gains associated with the new process that should have really raised eyebrows. One factory that made the shift could produce 40 tons of steel per hour using the open hearth process. But after installing basic oxygen equipment, it managed to quadruple that figure. Unfortunately, Big Steel was too proud to notice Europe's gaining ground. In a typical advertisement from the era, U.S. Steel claimed it was a company where the big idea is innovation. But this claim, much like so many of the braggadocious claims of the day, could not hide a more disturbing reality. Indeed, throughout the 1950s, as Europe's steelmakers built new factories around the basic oxygen process and simultaneously demolished its remaining open hearth furnaces, Big Steel made endless excuses. Representatives of the Big Three, Bethlehem, U.S. Steel, and Republic, repeatedly claimed that the jury was out on the new method, all evidence to the contrary. 
1957, even Congress realized that something was amiss, and it summoned steel industry executives to testify. In one particularly cringeworthy performance, a U.S. steel representative told a committee, the distinguishing characteristic of the American steel industry is its tremendous productivity, uh, a quality which other countries have been unable to emulate so far, later adding that the company had examined the methods popular in Europe but found them wanting. This was madness, the writer points out. While Big Steel fiddled basic oxygen for Furnaces burned over brighter around the world. So, too, did yet another method of making steel that was even more revolutionary, the electric arc method. This technique used electric uh, electricity rather to recycle iron scrap, turning it into steel. Unlike conventional steel mills, electric arc mills are small-scale enterprises that are easy to establish, cheap to build, even if they can't produce anywhere near the scale of a conventional integrated mill. The Europeans began building these, too, in mass. As these two methods continue to take off in Europe, and then in Japan and elsewhere in Asia, American companies continued to add completely inefficient open hearth furnaces to their shop floors, doubling down on the obsolescent uh, technology. By the 60s, Big Steel began building basic oxygen plants. Grudgingly, it was too late. The steel industry had squandered its supremacy. Hence the title of the uh, the article. It could have gone differently. Economists who have run counterfactual scenarios where Big Steel made the necessary capital improvements to stay competitive suggest that the American companies could have stayed on top and reaped even greater profits than it did by postponing the inevitable upgrades. But there's a final twist to this tale that highlights the absurdity of Trump's strategy. In the 1960s, a man named Ken Iverson took over a conglomerate that acquired a stake in the steel business that became Nucar in U. C-O-R. Iverson then bet the firm's future on making steel using the electric arc process, building the first American fac- uh, a facility rather in 1969. It began growing and, uh, at an exponential rate, competing rather effectively with foreign producers, to say nothing of other American producers. As other steel producers begged for protectionist trade policy, Iverson mocked the idea. In an interview in 1986, Iverson noted that protectionist measures already instituted hadn't had the desired effect. As soon as prices began to rise so that the steel companies began to be profitable, they stopped modernizing, he said. It's only under intense competitive pressure, both internally from the mini mills and externally from the Japanese and the Koreans, that the big steel companies have been forced to modernize, end quote. Nucor has since become the nation's largest domestic steel producer, yet it has started to act like the U.S. steel of old. After Trump announced the tariffs, Nucor's CEO vigorously applauded the move, claiming it was long overdue. We'll see, but before Nucor joins the protectionist parade, it might want to recall the words of Iverson, who died in 2002 when his company was on the way to the top. Unless you're under intense competitive pressure and it becomes a question of the survival of the business to do it, you're just going to lapse back into your old ways. There's no other answer, end quote. Well, we'll see if, in fact, the president considers that history, but I thought you would want to know. Uh, looking back, what has worked in the past, what failed to work moving forward, and how we found ourselves, at least in part, uh, where we are today in terms of our competitiveness in the steel industry. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, speaking of competitiveness, the CIA has issued a classified report detailing China's far-reaching foreign influence operations campaign in the United States, a campaign, they're calling it, that imparts financial incentives as leverage to permeate American institutions. In an unclassified page of that report that was obtained by the Washington Free Beacon, the CIA cautions against efforts by the Chinese Communist Party to stipulate funding to universities and policy institutes in exchange for academic censorship. The CCP provides strings attached funding to academic institutions and think tanks to deter research that casts it in a negative light, the report says. It's used this tactic to reward pro-China viewpoints and coerce Western academic publications and conferences to self-censor. The CCP often denies visas to academics who criticize the regime, encouraging many China scholars to um, uh, preemptively self-censor so they can maintain access to the country on which their research depends. The CIA warning joins a growing call by U.S. lawmakers, intelligence officials to investigate China's involvement on American college campuses. The agency declined to comment on the report. FBI Director uh, Christopher Wray told the Senate Intelligence Committee last month the Bureau is investigating dozens of Confucius Institutes, the Chinese-backed language and cultural centers hosted by more than 100 universities across the country. And despite their broad entrenchment in American academics, uh, academics rather, over the past decade, there's very little known about the nature of these contracts between Beijing and the host universities, funding uh, amounts and contractual terms, uh, they're largely kept secret. Well, the U.S. intelligence community has warned of the Institute's uh, potential to be using as uh, used rather as a spying tool, and the concern is particularly pressing at the 13 universities that host both Confucius Institutes and top-secret Pentagon research, including Arizona State, Auburn, Purdue, Stanford, and the University of Washington. And the Pentagon's top intelligence official warned that China and Russia are engaging in information and cyber attacks against the United States as part of an undeclared uh, low-level conflict. Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, who's the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, said during a Senate hearing, the character of war is changing as technology facilitates greater global reach with weapons such as cyber attacks. War is no longer carried out as it was during Europe's 30 years war. Um, when forces lined up for battles, he said. So the line of which you declare hostilities is extremely blurred. And if you were to ask Russia and China, do you think you're at some form of conflict with the United States? I think behind closed doors, their answer would be yes. The three-star general was uh, commenting when asked uh, when, uh, rather, what would constitute an act of war, such as a cyber attack or use of space weapons against satellites. It's hard to make that determination to definitively say that what constitutes an act of war when you're in a gray zone in a, uh, a lot of the areas that, uh, that you operate, uh, he said. Again, Army Lieutenant General uh, Robert Ashley, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates. He appeared before the Senate Armed Services Committee with Ashley, and he also voiced concerns about the growing threat posed by China's military buildup and global influence operations, saying, I think it's been very clear over the past few years that China is willing to take pretty extraordinary means in terms of expanding its influence, not only over the region in South China Sea, but throughout the globe. In a 35-page prepared statement, Ashley provided new details 
details of a growing list of military and information threats to the United States posed by China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and terrorist groups. The threat posed by China dominated much of his testimony, though. According to Ashley, the ruling Communist Party of China has streamlined and upgraded both China's huge military forces and its command structure. The result is China is preparing for operations he described as fighting short short duration, high-intensity regional conflicts at greater distances from the Chinese mainland. The military buildup has produced improvements to warfighting capabilities for all domains of conflict, including air, sea, space, electronic warfare, and information operations, he said. A key worry is China's advanced long-range land attack and anti-ship cruise missile that can be fired from ground launchers, aircraft, ships, and submarines. General Ashley also disclosed for the first time that China is augmenting its land and sea-based missile capabilities with two new air-launched ballistic missiles, including one that will be nuclear-armed. China's nuclear forces also include ultra-high-speed hypersonic strike vehicles launched from missiles and silos, rail-based long-range missiles, nuclear missile submarines. Bombers also pose a threat to the United States, he said. Additionally, China has space weapons capable of shooting out uh, satellites uh, during the early stage of a conflict, including anti-satellite missiles, maneuvering satellites, laser and electronic jammers. The space weapons are aimed at crippling military communication, navigation and weapons targeting. He goes on. The two of them go on from there. But putting into perspective the challenges we face, not just from Russia and whether or not they influenced our elections, but how countries uh, like Russia, China, Iran and others are influencing other areas that are vital to uh, the United States national security interests. Meanwhile, President Trump just forced North Korea's strongman Kim Jong-un to come to the negotiating table with maybe just a little help from Twitter. Experts say that Trump's strategy dealing with the rogue regime, a combination of tweeted warnings and mockery, though sanctions are rather tough sanctions and pressure on China and others, uh, to toe the line is uh, bearing fruit. Evidence uh, came this week when Kim told a delegation from South Korea his regime is willing to discuss nuclear disarmament with the United States. While I wouldn't say that Trump has the, the Kim regime crying uncle, I would say, I'm quoting a, a spec, an expert, rather, a political economist at the American Enterprise Institute, Nicholas Eberstad, I would say, to use a sports analogy, that North Korea is now like a running back looking for space to move in the backfield. Military solutions are now fully in place, locked and loaded, should South Korea, or rather North Korea, act unwisely. Uh, Trump tweeted back in August, hopefully Kim Jong-un will find another path. And while some are suggesting that sanctions, hardline rhetoric have brought North Korea to the negotiating table, others are cautioning that um, we need to be wary of North Korea's sudden turn toward diplomacy. We've seen this act before, and it rarely results in the outcome uh, that's hoped for. Michael Rubin uh, suggests that uh, whether or not peace is about to break out in the Korean peninsula is a very big question. South Korea envoy reported a breakthrough after returning from the North, and this is following the Olympics, saying the North Korean side clearly uh, stated its willingness to denuclearize. South Korean President Moon Jae-in's office announced, adding it made it clear that it would uh, have no reason to keep nuclear weapons if the military threat to the North was eliminated and its security guarantee. Now, this contradicts uh, directly comments that were made the day before the Olympics uh, broke out. And Kim Jong-un said that under no circumstances does our involvement in the 
uh, in the Olympic Games uh, signal any change in our nuclear policy. We will not give up our nuclear weapons. And then, of course, there was a show of their munitions the day before the delegation left from the north to the south. So a lot of head scratching here. Taking to Twitter, President Trump cautiously welcomed the possible progress in quotes, but also noted it could be false hope. Make no mistake, North Korea's offer warrants no um, uh, warrants not hope, but caution. Dictator Kim Jong-un's move comes straight out of the rogue regime playbook, offer peace to distract from preparations for war. That it repeatedly works uh, reflects the naivete of the Western officials for whom history begins anew with every administration. Well, the simple fact is this. While Americans and South Koreans view engagement as a tool of conflict resolution, North Korea's regime and its Chinese sponsors see diplomacy as an asymmetric warfare strategy with which to tie opponents' hands while they seize strategic advantage. And this, there's really no reason to imagine this uh, event is uh, any different than what we've seen repeatedly over the last several administrations. It's a pattern that dates back 65 years for Americans. The Korean War and is ancient history, but for North Korea, it never ended. After all, the 1953 armistice was only a ceasefire and not always an effective one at that. So over the decades, North Korea has staged hundreds of attacks across the DMZ. In 68, for example, its commandos seized the USS Pueblo, a U.S. naval vessel operating in international waters. And when the Johnson administration dispatched a carrier's strike group offshore. North Korea agreed to discuss the Pueblo return after the White House took force off the table. Talks stalled. Well, today the Pueblo remains moored in North Korea. So I think Michael Rubin's caution and certainly that of others who have been observers for many decades of uh, North Korea, it is uh, certainly right to be um, wary. And the president was correct in saying that he welcomed the possible progress, but also noted it could be false hope in North Korea. Now, coming up, we're going to talk about uh, country music and whether or not the uh, industry has shifted in a dramatic way that's unexpected, particularly for conservatives who have tended to flock toward the industry and found themselves welcomed there. We're also going to talk uh, talk about a battle going on with HUD and uh, families fight over losing custody over a daughter's uh, gender reassignment. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Tony Perkins asked the question whether or not country music is going the way of all things, namely the NFL. Uh, as you may have heard, uh, one of their board members has stepped away. He suggests that there's reason to suggest to um, believe that uh, there's viewpoint discrimination within the organization. Well, Perkins writes that through all of the cultural ups and downs, country music has always been a place conservatives felt welcome. Now, I'm not a country music fan, but I know that to be the case that conservatives uh, tend to flock there and felt welcome, at least. While so many other celebrities started picking up activist uh, causes and shaming fans who held Christian beliefs, America could always count on Nashville to stay true uh, to their values or at least tolerate them. But That's no longer the case. He argues that and points out that Thursday in a letter that rocked the country music scene, Governor Mike Huckabee announced that he was leaving his seat on the board of the Country Music Association, the CMA Foundation. It's a position he'd occupied for less than 24 hours. And despite an impressive background in music, his record on education, the sole issue of the... uh, 
the board he served on, the Country Music Association Foundation, their focus education. He became the instant target of a vicious anti-faith attack. Well, a small but vocal pocket in Nashville's music industry seized on his uh, involvement with a vengeance, demanding that Huckabee go or their support of the foundation would uh, would go. Jason Owen and his husband, both LGBT activists whose Monument Records and Sandbox Entertainment represent some of the uh, genre's biggest stars, country music's biggest stars, called the uh, selection of Huckabee a grossly offensive decision. Owen, who counts uh, Midland, Little Big Town, Casey Musgraves, Dan plus Shea, Faith Hill, and others among his clients, claimed Huckabee's involvement would harm the very uh, kids the foundation was created to help. Not to mention, Owen went on to say, how harmful and damaging his deep involvement with the NRA is. Now, I'm not sure how deep his involvement is, but any connection at all these days is considered um, a pariah. What a shameful choice, he went on to conclude. Well, others like Sugarland's manager, Whitney Pastorek, accused Huckabee and the 53% of Americans with uh, natural marriage beliefs like his of bigotry, racism, and sexism. With uh, breathtaking prejudice, she insists, while Governor Huckabee's tenure in Arkansas may have resulted in valuable education reform over a decade ago, which, by the way, is the sole focus of this foundation, I find his choice to spend the next 10 years profiting off messages of of exclusion and hatred, not to mention the gun lobby, to be disqualifying. Well, Huckabee penned a powerful letter to the CMA in response. He decided to bow out of the board rather than let it become a distraction to the foundation's core mission. But in doing so, he wanted to make several things clear, including this. He would never apologize for his views. And in that uh, note penned, this letter he penned, he wrote, I genuinely regret that some in the industry were so outraged by my appointment that they bullied the CMA and the foundation with economic threats and vowed to withhold support for the programs for students if I remained. I'm somewhat flattered um, to be of such consequence when all I thought I was doing was voluntarily serving on a nonprofit board without pay in order to continue my decades of advocacy for the arts and especially music. All of us, he went on, have deep passions about our beliefs. I do about mine, but I hate no one. I wish upon no one the loss of life or livelihood because that person sees things differently than me. If the industry doesn't want people of faith, he went on, or who hold conservative and traditional political views to buy tickets and music, they should be forthcoming and say it. Surely neither the artists nor the business people of the industry want that. Until recently, the arts was the one place America could set aside political, geographical, racial, religious, and economic barriers and come together. If the arts uh, community becomes part of the polarization instead of bridging communities and people over the power of civil norms as reflected in the arts, then we as a civilization may not be long for this earth. For Nashville, which has always counted the God-loving, gun-clinging deplorables as its strongest base, this is a defining moment. Um, Tony Perkins goes on, anyone who underestimates the buying power of patriotic America, especially after the last year and a half, isn't paying attention. If country music joins Hollywood in its open attack on faithful America, a faith America might um, mighty enough to send Donald Trump to the White House, uh, it's it's uh, sealing its own faith. He goes on to write, surely the artists aligned with Owen and uh, Pastorek saw what happened to the NFL. Roger Goodell's refusal to rein in his players and demand respect for the flag cost the league millions of dollars and even more in brand power and credibility. He lost sponsors, ratings, worldwide fans when he stood by and let the NFL disgrace the anthem and everything it stands for. If country music listens to these fringe voices and walks away from the relationships it built with freedom-loving Americans, then look out.
it's about the, to find itself on the wrong side of a very uh, determined coalition. Now, I find it interesting that some of the artists that were represented by uh, these uh, organizations would hold the very views that they are uh, opposing uh, uh, in Mike Huckabee. Uh, but uh, the uh, the article goes on and again, quoting from Tony Perkins, like so many phony advocates of tolerance, these agents claim they're battling for inclusion while demanding the exclusion of anyone with a different view. Are the artists going to stand by Monument Records attack on the vast majority of Americans who listen to and buy their songs? And then he encourages uh, those who are fans to reach out to Dan and Shave, to Faith Hill, to Casey Musgraves. Uh, Little Big Town, uh, Midland official, uh, Seth Ennis, um, Z. Devon, and uh, John Oates, apparently all country music uh, performers and musicians. Again, Mike Huckabee stepping stepping away from the board position, having been uh, pushed out. There's no law against being conservative, but two extreme organizations would love to believe there is. After more than a year of watching President Trump populate his agencies with pro-life uh, and freedom-loving uh, leaders, many liberals are doing everything they can to force the staffers and their policies out, and that includes The Hill reports a 10-page lawsuit. Well, tired of seeing their radical progress overturned, People for the American Way and Right Wing Watch are trying to undo the results of the election, one court case at a time. Their latest attempt, suing the Department of Housing and Urban Development in a, um, a stretch even uh, by standards on the other side of the political ledger, the gist of the complaint is nothing more than than the natural consequence of democracy. They object to an administration's implementing policies in line with its ideology. Well, according to the suit, HUD, which is overseen by Secretary Ben Carson, quietly removed materials from their website that promoted the Obama-era transgenderism in public housing. Trump officials also, they argue, canceled a survey on LGBT homelessness and ended its partnership with the far-left study on, on supposed discrimination against people who identify as gay and lesbian. Of course, none of of those changes should come as a surprise to anyone who paid attention to the priorities of then-candidate Donald Trump, now president. HUD officials, like the president, believe in housing for every not, everyone, not special privileges for a vocal few. The suit, which claims that HUD hasn't, uh, hasn't replied uh, quickly enough to the group's demands for information, seems to forget that uh, Barack Obama's administration ignored more than 479,000 Freedom of Information Act requests just in its first four years. Yet it doesn't mind blasting Trump officials for not completing or rather complying with its demands in a matter of months. Meanwhile, Health and Human Services uh, at Health and Human Services, Senator Patty Murray out of Washington State has her sight set on the resignation of Scott Lloyd, the pro-life head of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which made headlines when the ACLU snuck minor girls off in, in the early hours of the morning for abortions before the Justice Department could intervene. Now, despite complaints that some of these teenagers in custody are being coerced to abort, Washington's radical senator wants to unseat the one man who has their best interest at heart. Under Scott Lloyd's leadership, Leadership, Murray complained, an office tasked with caring for young, vulnerable women in our country's custody has been turned into an ad hoc testing ground for the Trump-Pence plan to interfere with women's most personal health care decisions and take away women's constitutional right to safe, legal abortion, unless, of course, they're carrying a, a, a girl child, in which case their rights do not matter. Insisting that she cares deeply for these young women, she goes on to blast Lloyd as nothing less than a threat to their safety. He should step down immediately. 
lately, she insists. Well, Lloyd, who's uh, faced his um, share of extremists in the days since October when he tried to shield a vulnerable 17-year-old mom from the agenda of groups like Planned Parenthood, isn't budging, saying refugee is the basis of our name and it is at the core of what we provide and we provide this to all the minors in our care, including their unborn children every day. Well, March for Life Action President and former uh, Family Research Counselor Tom McCluskey says that Murray and others seem to have forgotten the general rule of politics that elections have consequences. When President Obama was elected, he quickly surrounded himself with ardent pro-abortion advocates and activists. He put them in positions of responsibility that Obama's successor would appoint people with different priorities as par for the course. This is what a majority of voters elected Donald Trump to do. President Trump could not have been clearer on his pro-life intentions. There's a reason the left is screaming, and it should be the same reason Constitution conservatives should be cheering. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Philip Lawler. He is a Catholic and is the author of The Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock, getting a glimpse into some of the controversy in uh, within the Catholic Church. We'll get into that tomorrow with uh, Mr. Philip Lawler when he joins us in the first hour of the program. Well, parents across the country have been stunned by the story of a radical judge in Cincinnati who decided to strip custody away from Christian parents because they didn't agree with their daughter's decision to switch genders. In a case that pits parents' rights against an agenda that some pediatricians call child abuse, one Ohio leader is standing up for the uh, state's moms and dads. Ohio uh, Lieutenant Governor Mary Taylor was just as horrified as the rest of the nation when Sylvia Hendon, a visiting juvenile court judge, ruled that a 17-year-old girl should be plucked from her home and placed with grandparents who want to give her sex change drugs. And by the way, we don't know the long-term impacts of those drugs or the mutilating surgeries that accompany sex change. Uh, But now as she applies for the state's top job, she wants um, Buckeyes to know that, referring to the governor, that she's committed to ensuring that this injustice never happens again. At an event earlier this week, Nathan Estuth Uh, Taylor's running mate uh, told the crowd that the duo is determined to create a firewall in the state of Ohio for parents to raise their kids with the values and education that they choose. We will pass a law that stops government intervention into the rights of families and parents, wherever that fight will be. Well, soon that will be more than talk. State Representative Tom Brinkman is close to introducing legislation that would protect concerned parents like these. He, too, spoke at the uh, rally on Monday, which was full of locals holding signs like hands off our kids and parents have rights to Taylor Brinkman and every state leader who's not only taking their threat seriously, but doing everything they can to stop it should be applauded. And there's a very real possibility that uh, war memorial crosses at Arlington National Cemetery could be in jeopardy, a federal judge warned, in a chilling descent to a court case involving the fate of a 90-year-old monument that honors soldiers in Bladensburg, Maryland. Well, the fir- fourth rather, Circuit Court of Appeals on Thursday refused to revisit an October decision that declared the 90-year-old Peace Cross was unconstitutional because it rests on public property. The monument is a memorial to the 49 men from Prince George. George's County, Maryland, who died fighting for liberty in World War One. The memorial, paid for by the American Legion and local citizens, consists of a large Celtic cross on a pedestal inscribed with the words valor, endurance, courage, and devotion. 
The American Humanist Association that represents a uh, gang of humanists and atheists uh, was responsible for filing the original lawsuit. Government war memorials should respect all veterans, not just those from one religious group. The uh, attorney representing the group said, Monica Miller, the cross unconstitutionally endorses Christianity and favors Christian soldiers to the exclusion of all others. Well, that, of course, is uh, a lie perpetrated by some very um, uh, strong humanist and uh, uh, and atheist. But the Establishment Clause actually allows monuments that include religious symbols and texts to stand on public land, according to the Van Orden versus Perry decision. You need to understand that the American Humanist Association's ultimate goal, it wants to eradicate any public mention of Christianity or religion at all. It wants to destroy the Judeo-Christian values and teachings that uh, flavor every one of our founding documents. It has declared war on Christians in America, and it won't stop until God and Jesus and the Bible are scrubbed from the public marketplace. Well, federal judge Paul Niemeyer warned people of faith that the bland, the Blandensburg ruling could lead to the unthinkable, the removal of memorial crosses at Arlington National Cemetery. It puts at risk hundreds of monuments with similar symbols standing on public grounds across the country, such as those in nearby Arlington National Cemetery where crosses of comparable size stand in commemoration of fallen soldiers. Judge Niemeyer wrote in his chilling dissent, First Liberty Institute and Jones Day, the law firms representing the American Legion, vowed to appeal to the Supreme Court, and they should. Otherwise, the atheists will be free to commandeer bulldozers, turn our war memorials across the nation into piles of rubble. We'll see what happens in that case, and we'll certainly follow the story uh, as it develops. So keep your eyes and ears open. A couple of things I want to mention. Michael Allen Harris is, uh, Harrison is being featured in a concert on Friday the 9th at Canby Chapel. That's a benefit concert to uh, benefit StandUpGirl.com Foundation. It's a music to the heart featuring the pianist Michael Allen Harrison. Again, that's at the Canby Chapel uh, Friday, March the 9th, 7 o'clock BM, uh, p.m. <laughs> I want to get that right. Uh, the cost is $35 general admission. You can purchase your tickets online at StandUpGirlFoundation.com org slash concert space is limited tickets must be purchased in advance so you can check it out um, uh, standupgirlfoundation.org slash concert or you can go to stand up girls uh, office at 503-304-1531 again that's this friday night seven o'clock in canby also on Saturday, you have an opportunity to enjoy some clean comedy with Johnny W. KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish, are offering a night of clean comedy uh, with his own mix of musical chops, offbeat stand-up. Johnny W. will bring a hilarious comedy experience for your whole family. It's happening this Saturday, March the 10th at East Hill Church in Gresham. Find out more and get your tickets now at kpdq.com or through the KPDQ mobile app. I have to let you in on a little secret. You know, not every comedian is all that funny. So I actually went to the website. I went to YouTube and listened through a few of his comedy routines. And I can um, heartily endorse Johnny W. as actually being funny. So in case you're wondering, I think you'll enjoy it. He's also a pretty fine musician, a great guitarist with a nice voice. So I was uh, pleasantly surprised all the way around. Again, that's coming up this Saturday for uh, tickets, kpdq.com, or go to the uh, Go through the KPDQ mobile app. And finally, you're going to begin to hear more interviews with some of the Christian schools in our area who are offering tuition discounts of up to 40 
percent. Now you can look for the specific schools and their specific discount amounts at kpdq.com or listenersavings.com. But a Christian education for your child just might be more possible with these discounts. KPDQ listeners can save, as I mentioned, up to 40 percent on Christian school tuition. Those schools include Cornerstone Christian Academy, Valor Christian School, North Clackamas Christian School, Pilgrim Lutheran Christian School, Holy Cross Catholic Church, Gardy Christian School, and Grace Lutheran School. That list it continues to expand. In fact, I know there are several others we're going to be talking with in the days ahead. And you can find out all the important details at listener savings, plural, listenersavings.com. A great time to check out uh, what you can save in terms of the cost of tuition in your area. Now, once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Philip Lawler. He is the author of The Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. There's really a, quite a divide uh, within the church and certainly the the uh, mainstream media's impression of the uh, of the pope uh, differs from many within the uh, within the uh, Catholic Church. So we're going to talk with Philip Lawler about that. We'll also be engaging in one of the interviews with the school that's offering a discount. And we're going to be talking with the uh, speaker of the upcoming uh, uh, prayer breakfast, Good Friday breakfast that's coming up on, you guessed it, Good Friday. And I'm looking forward to a conversation with her. She is the survivor of that uh, very tragic shooting in a church uh, not long ago. Uh, and the decision she made to respond in a Christ-like way has really um, raised her uh, profile and given her opportunity to talk about what forgiveness looks like, even under some of the more tragic circumstances. When you consider what Scripture says about forgiveness and turning the other cheek and extending grace— uh, she really is a um, a walking example of that under the most difficult and challenging of circumstances one might imagine. When you're talking about family members who were murdered, senselessly murdered, while worshiping in a church building, and for this young woman to make the decision that her Christian faith was going to inform her response, and when she was given the opportunity to speak to the person who was responsible for the death of her family members, uh, when that was reflected in uh, her comments, uh, again, this is going to be a wonderful opportunity not only to talk with her tomorrow, but to hear from her at the Good Friday Breakfast. We'll make sure you have all the details of that event that's coming up uh, again this year. All right. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to uh, thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing. And by the way, we fully intend on Friday uh, to shift our focus away from some of the more serious news, although if there is breaking news, we will break in. But we're going to focus on the lighter side of the news. Last weekend, we uh, featured uh, the memorial service and some excerpts from uh, the funeral of, uh, of Billy Graham. But this Friday, we're going to kind of revert back to our tradition. So we're looking forward to that. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll be with us again tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.